Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. <laughs> well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. I want to use this podcast episode to tell you what I'm getting you for your birthday, Sherry. Well, that's going to ruin the surprise. Yeah, I know, you but... suck. But I we, like my... I like surprises. It's important that we talk about it now because we need listeners to get ready for your birthday. Okay. Your birthday is August 16th, and something very special is happening on August 16th. I turned 50. Oh, well, yeah, that. <laughs> well, yeah. You know... It's Monday. Was it exciting yesterday that you got your very first piece of AARP mail? Yes, and you guys were making fun of it, and you're not going to reap the benefits of my AARP. What, what, discounts on shuttleboard or something? Shuttleboard. Shuffleboard? Sorry, shuttleboard. No, it's like airlines and, you know, um, travel stuff and hotels, since we spend so much on the hotels that we... Use on our way to Indiana, our eighty dollar hotel, but we could get a discount with them. I don't know. It was other stuff. Also, I was shocked that you got that because I thought AARP was for sixty year olds, not fifty year olds. A lot of people get to retire a lot earlier than we're gonna. Apparently, yeah. Well, I thought it was for fifty five because like some places will give discounts at age fifty five for things. Um, you know, we have. 20-somethings that listen to this podcast, and I'm wondering if they're still listening a minute and 30 seconds in on this one. It's the things to look forward to. The things to look forward to. But yes, so that was exciting that you got your first piece of AAR. Mm -hmm. I was going to say, I'm not going to tell people what birthday this was, just that it was a big one, but Mm. you just, you're not, you just spilled it. You don't care. You're tough. Whatever. I'm 50. Yeah. Yeah. 50, you're beautiful, you're strong, you're vibrant you're intelligent don't care who who knows about it yes well and then when i'm not feeling all of those things i can say leave me alone i'm 50 now okay good well so for your birthday we are releasing a very special podcast episode and i want to tease it right here now she's rolling her eyes at me she is not excited about her presence i thought it was gonna be something really good She's well, not, it is. not that it's a podcast, like that's a terrible thing, but it I'm will like... be episode 100. This, oh. this episode that we're discussing right now is episode 98, so we're just a couple away from 100. And to do something special to celebrate episode 100, we have invited a bunch of the members of our Echoes of Recovery program on to have a, a great discussion with us. We're going to talk about why it is so important to have somebody to talk to in your early recovery or discovery period from the alcoholism of your loved one. This is not an advertisement for Echoes of Recovery, this this podcast episode. The person you talk to can be uh, a family member or a friend. It can be be a therapist. It could be Echoes. It could be Al-Anon. We're just going to talk about how important that is. Because I really believe that a lot of our listenership, a lot of people that are listening to this episode right now, don't have anyone to talk to. And we're going to help you figure out how to do that, how to do that safely and effectively. Uh, Not not everyone is a good person to talk to. People who've never been through this aren't necessarily good good people to talk to. People who just want to constantly offer advice and not listen to what you have to say 
with empathy, but instead just want to fix it for you, man, those people are hard to talk to. So it's going to be a great discussion. Episode 100 of the Intoxicated Podcast dropping on August 16th. We hope you will tune back in and just think of the fact that it's also Sherry's birthday. Very exciting. Sherry, I had a friend in college that came up with the slingshot theory. I don't remember if we've ever talked about this, but this was when I was... You mean on the podcast? Yeah, because you've heard about it a lot. Yes, yes. Yeah, love this guy. And and he would talk about how if you are like, like, let's say you have a late class or a test or something in college and you get to where all of your friends are, you get to the party late and all of your friends have been drinking for a couple hours, you know, the, the typical reaction in the 21 or 22 year old brain is, oh, I've got to catch up. Or 19 or 16. Or 19 or 16. Depending on when you start. I've got to catch up. You've heard that term, oh, yeah. right? I got to yeah. catch And inevitably, the person who's trying to catch up starts doing shots. And within minutes, literally, they're often the drunkest person at the party. So the slingshot theory is you go from being the sober guy to trying to catch up with your friends and you go flying past them into oblivion. It's almost the precursor to the FOMO, fear of missing out. Ooh. You're now that I think about 1990s it. 1990s like, version of Fear of Missing Yeah. Out. Like, what have I missed? I gotta catch up. Everybody's laughing and having a good time. Yeah. They must know. They're already yeah. slurring and repeating themselves. How can I get there as quickly as possible? I love it. The precursor to FOMO. You're right. Um, as an aside, not relevant at all to the topic, the, the gentleman also who came up with the slingshot theory also had the smart idiot theory that one, I think, was specifically to me. He would make fun of me because he would say that I would go to campus to take a test and I would ace the test, but then on the way out, I would be pushing on the pull door to get out and couldn't figure out how to get out of the building. Mm-hmm. So that I think I always referred to that as the dumb idiot theory, and yeah. you'd be like, no, it's a smart idiot sm- I wanted like, half credit for wanted, acing yeah, the test for, at least. Yeah. Or at least getting that B that I normally get. You get the B without studying. The smart idiot theory. But yeah, the slingshot theory, that's the one that we're really here to talk about today. Overshooting the mark. You know, Sherry, when I think about my alcoholism, there's a way to think of it in two components. The alcohol made us fight. The alcohol made me arrogant, made me rude. It made me really unsatisfied And that word unsatisfied, when I was thinking about what we were going to discuss and I was taking notes, I circled unsatisfied a bunch of times because I think that's one of the unique characteristics of alcohol. Whatever you're doing, you want to do more of it. If you're drinking, you want to drink more. If you're having sex, you want to have more sex. If if the party is winding down, you don't want the party to wind down. You want the party to keep going. Uh, if, If you're at a sporting event... And it's the fourth quarter. You don't want it to be the fourth quarter. You want to stay there all day. Alcohol makes us unsatisfied, and the unsatisfied makes us assholes. And I'm sure that you can uh, think of many instances when I just couldn't leave well enough alone. I, you know, we would have a nice time, and there were many times. I mean, I think this is important. I wasn't just a constantly belligerent drunk. I didn't. I didn't start drinking it eight o'clock in the morning. 
there were lots of times when we would go out and we would have a nice evening, mm-hmm. but it was just never enough for me. I I always wanted to to do more or to go to one more bar, to have one more drink, or you know to to stay past when we had worn out our welcome at a party. It was just never. I was unsatisfied and it made me an asshole. Yeah, or you know if. Like we've often mentioned on the podcast, we had owned a bakery and it was a franchise bakery and they had conventions. Well, Mm. you always wanted to have people, you know, you always wanted to like try to host an after party or you always have alcohol, plenty of alcohol in the room so then you could entice people to come back over. It's not because I think you hated me. It's just you didn't want the party to end. Yeah. And then you would be so pathetic on the day of coming home. Usually we hadn't you know, a morning flight because we had to get back to the kids and to the bakery. Yeah. And uh, you just would be so sad. I think this is an angle that we've not really talked a lot about. We've talked about convention lots, but this whole concept that alcohol is just really, really, really unsatisfying. Whatever it gives us, it leaves us wanting more. And Mm -hmm. convention's a perfect example. I never, I was never satisfied at convention. We could be breaking into the pool at three o'clock in the morning and I would want to think, you know, what's, what stunt are we going to do next? Mm-hmm. Just got to keep going. So yeah, the unsatisfied made me an asshole. And I, and I think it's important to recognize that alcohol, uh, creates these problems. It, it's not the alcoholism necessarily, because I, I had this going on even back when I was in high school with my, my high school girlfriend. I can remember, I don't remember a lot of the specifics, probably because I was drinking, but I remember being at a high school party and just right in front of everyone getting this huge shouting argument at this high school party. And I mean, that was uncharacteristic of me. I was, I wasn't shy, but I wasn't nearly as outgoing as I am now. We had moved during my freshman year in high school. So, you know, I was still sort of the new kid on the block. I hadn't been around these kids for elementary and middle school like a lot of them had been. And so I wasn't Mr. Outgoing, that's for sure. To be So to be in a shouting match with my girlfriend at a high school party was a little uncharacteristic, but with alcohol, it was no problem. And there were, there were definitely similar situations with the girlfriend that I had early on in college, uh, just arguing and bickering and angry and fighting and just um, not getting along. And I got along with pretty much everybody when I was sober. It was just the alcohol would, again, make me unsatisfied, make me an asshole, and cause conflict with people. And I think many people that listen to this will be familiar um, familiar with that. Did, did you have, I mean, there was a lot of drinking and partying going on in, in high school when you were growing up. Did you see it change people and, and create fights between boyfriends and girlfriends or just fights between guys that uh, had too much to drink. Yeah, I just and I didn't really think about it being an unsatisfactory feeling. I just kind of assumed it was alcohol and immaturity and hormones and emotions all kind of coming up to a bubbling point. I mean, but isn't that what alcohol does? It takes the emotions that we're keeping in check and brings them to a bubbling point. Or, like you've said to me, that it just, like, changes your emotions. and Yeah. Like, someone who would be totally out of character acting one way when they're drunk and 
not being in line with their character, so I don't necessarily feel being unchecked. It just, you know, it's different. Well, but I never thought about it being anything unsatis, you know, being unsatisfied. The drinker I'm, being unsatisfied. Yeah, I I have a feeling like there's a story that's happened when you and I were dating, and maybe we had been dating for about a year at that point. Um, and it was about your birthday. I think it must have been your 22nd birthday. And you, when you were describing your feeling of wanting more and more, it made me think about that because I had purchased gifts. We were going to just, you know, go out in our college town and you were like, nope, that's just not going to be good enough. Like, I mean, you didn't say it with those words, but you're like, why don't we go up, you know, to the next, the town north of us, Indianapolis and stay in a hotel and go out. And I was like, uh, this is what my budget can afford for gifting you. But yeah. you were like, no, it's not enough. It's my birthday. It's, you know, I'm turning 22 or whatever, you know. So I was like, I guess I saw that you were becoming dissatisfied with the way things were going when, even when you weren't drinking. Yeah. Because I feel like that kind of is something that progressed. Yeah. But maybe it was maybe it was because you were just drinking a lot and alcohol was in your system a lot. That... Well, one thing's for sure: the alcohol caused lots of arguments, and I I mentioned those two stories about previous girlfriends just to highlight the fact that it wasn't you; it wasn't you that I was fighting with. I, you know, my arguments were with with anyone that I was with when I was drinking. I even took a swing at my best friend in high school once. I was really drunk that night. And too drunk mm. to hit him, so that was good, because yeah, yeah, he just kind of laughed at me. But yeah, the the changes alcohol creates in us, you know, we we don't need to dwell on that any longer. Anyone who's listening to the Untoxicated podcast understands the changes that alcohol create in people. But so you've got that the alcohol makes us fight, leaves us unsatisfied, leaves us unsatisfied, creates the asshole in us, but then the stress makes us drink. This is the second part of this. And we're, you know, we're going to get back to my friend's slingshot theory. Um, the, the, the stress makes us, makes us drink and it makes us continue to drink and it makes the consumption escalate as time goes on. You know, I can remember back to when we lived in Chicago, when we were in our twenties and I've got this stress-free vision of an evening when we were at that bar. I don't remember what the it was up it was up by Wrigley Field. I don't remember what the street was that it was on, but it was really really loud. It played really really loud music and like the windows would be open in the front and you could look out onto the sidewalk. I hated lock. that bar. You didn't like that bar? Bar Louie because oh. they had huge speakers over every table and you couldn't hear jack shit. I, for some That's reason, how all of them are. They're franchises. Oh, really? Yeah. I, for some reason, just have this like picture that will never go away in my mind of sitting there and just being really content, probably happy hour or early evening on a Friday uh, when we lived there because you and I had no kids. We each had a job, but, you know, come on, it was our first job out of college, so not a ton of responsibility. It wasn't like the companies we worked for were relying on us for survival at that point. We were just doing some entry level thing. And we, you know, we had a small little 700 square foot condo that we had to maintain the mortgage on. 
and, but but no kids, uh, you know, no one was really leaning on us or depending on us in any way. And when the stress is, was low like that, a lot of the times the drinking was able for me to be fun because there was nothing medicinal about it. But then I think about, you know, things happened from there, right? Promotions, we got moved around a lot. We got transferred with my job. We started having kids. Eventually, we transferred career-wise away from working for big companies into owning our own business. And with each of these changes, the stress and the amount of responsibility just increased, you know, one thing after another. And it was... It was really, really, it, it took its toll. I couldn't see it at the time. But looking back, I can definitely see it. You know, for a long time, achievement blinded me to the stress. As long as I was getting promotions or getting accolades at work or raises or whatever, um, then I took the stress in stride as part of it. Uh, and, I, you know, I lumped the kids into that same category. Everyone celebrates when you have a kid, so... Are kids stressful? Hell yes, they are. At the time, I didn't think of it that way, though. I didn't think of there being pressure to do it right or responsibility for keeping these little humans alive. I thought of it like, oh, I want to have a bunch of kids. Here's one. Here's another one. Here's another one. This is great. We're doing great. We're achieving our goals. So the achievement kind of clouded the stress for me for a long time. But then somewhere along the lines, it kind of shifted. And, you know, part of that is I think owed to when we started owning our own business. That's a different level of stress when you don't have a boss or a infrastructure to depend on and it's just us against the world. Um, that stress, it changed from achievement to survival. And all this time, the drinking kept going. And the stress or the being achievement-oriented, whichever way you want to look at that, it not only kept the drinking going, but it helped the drinking to escalate. So when you put these two things together, alcohol uh, left me unsatisfied, it made me an asshole, and it made me fight with you. And then the stress that was building with just adulthood. I mean, I don't think anyone who listens to this, their situations will be similar to ours. Whatever happens as you go through life, the stress keeps piling up. The responsibilities keep piling up. They get bigger and bigger. So the stress is making me drink and the drinking is making me an asshole. That's not a very good combination. I'm curious, Sherry, could you see Could you see it coming? Could you see the buildup coming? Like when, when I say that, you know, achievement blinded me to the, to the stress. As long as we were going forward and you know, things were going well career and family wise. I couldn't feel the pressure we were under, but I, I have a sense that you could. Mm-hmm. I mean, right down to the fact that I always said I wanted to have seven kids oh. and you would say no way. <laughs> um, it was that because you didn't want to go through childbirth seven times or you didn't want the responsibility well, of seven kids? Of, that's a lot of responsibility and a lot of financial responsibility and, you know, medical responsibility and emotional. and emotional responsibility and planning and logistics. So, yeah, seven was a, is a lot. But I don't necessarily know if I did notice the 
notice it coming down the pipeline other than when I felt like we were like five years into owning our own business. I was like, wow, this is not going the way we had kind of envisioned. And we were really naive. And we thought, oh, this is going to be fun and you grow your business this way. And I could, I could see it kind of taking a toll on the relationship and you and yeah, it was, that's when I was like, wow, this is, this is a mess. This is a real mess. And when that, at that point, how, like, did you tie one thing to the other? Could you see that the, that my drinking was escalating as a response to the fact that it was a mess? Yeah. Yeah. On your days off, like, even kind of at the beginning, on your days off from the uh, bakery and I would be in there, I could tell that you were drinking a lot heavier. I had, but I hadn't really realized it, like I said, until like uh, maybe about five years in and tied it back to it. I just thought you had gotten really good practice that year and a half we lived in northern Indiana because you traveled and you, but you worked in town and we had a neighbor that liked to come over for happy hours a lot and I thought you had just gotten kind of in this routine because you were a very routine kind of person. Routine of drinking more? Routine of whatever it is that you do. You like structure, you like routine, you have like I jokingly say if we do something once around a holiday it becomes a family tradition. You know, you just have to do it once. So I thought you had set up this new habit of drinking the way you did when we lived in close proximity to this neighbor that enjoyed happy hours that you hung out with a lot. Um, but by, yeah, because I'm just trying to think of like childbirth order. I feel like it was year five that I was like, wow, he's really drinking a lot and it's, it's turning ugly. Yeah. And that's when I was like the business, I mean, it was just all sorts of things that had added up. Yeah. You know, I, I think this, when you talk about my drinking escalating and drinking a lot, I think this is where that unsatisfied piece really fits. And, you know, the, the slingshot theory really fits because, you know, the alcohol created in me characteristics that were unappealing and unenjoyable for you to be around, for sure. But the alcohol created in me a form of stress relief and so you know when when my problems and my stresses still lingered even when I was drinking and I knew that it would just make me take that piece that unsatisfied piece and just chase it and drink more and more and more and you know I I never once we got in you know past age 25 or whatever it is when you're a reasonably mature adult I never set out to get drunk I set out to relax to calm my nerves a little bit to to have fun certainly on some occasions but you know weeknight drinking or anytime I drank alone and I drank alone a lot the goal wasn't to get drunk the goal was just to be an adult and use an adult stress relief technique which is consuming alcohol and have it calm my nerves. But then that unsatisfied P 
peace would kick in because alcohol makes us unsatisfied. And the stress was there and the stress was growing. And what I drank, you know, a few years ago wasn't enough to make the stress go away in the current type of drinking or the current, you know, age of my drinking. And so that's how it changes. That's somewhere in there is when I crossed over that invisible line from having fun and being an adult to the medicinal purposes for alcohol and crossed over that line into addiction. You know, the overshooting the mark, the slingshot thing, it it doesn't happen on purpose. It happens very naturally. It happens constantly to literally millions of people all the time. Um, and again, it's not it's not because I set out to get drunk. I set out to relax and bad things happen. There's one, I wonder if you remember this instance, some neighbors of ours that we were like, well, we were decent friends with. You and the, the wife in this couple were pretty good friends. We didn't know the, neither of us knew the husband terribly well, but you, you would go for coffee with her or you'd go on walks with her. They were walking by our house one day, and this is when, during the kegerator years, when I owned a kegerator, which for those that don't know, it's a little refrigerator that has a keg in it and a tap. And it's a terrible idea for anyone who is uh, borderline drinking too much. Because mm-hmm. I could just keep topping off that glass and never really knew how much beer I had drank. And I always had a nice strong IPA in the kegerator. But they were walking by and we started chatting with them and we invited them up on the porch to have a beer. And they stayed for hours, like three or four hours when mm-hmm. they were just on a walk, like they hadn't intended to come over. We hadn't necessarily invited them. Um, but the beer started flowing and he had no interest in leaving and I had no interest in him leaving either. So when you, I think that's a perfect example of, you know, overshooting the mark. It's just like when you say with your colleagues, let's go for a drink after work. You know, a drink can actually mean, I've learned in sobriety, a drink can actually mean a drink, a single drink. But normally when you go out with your work buddies for a drink or when you stop the neighbors that are walking by and invite them up onto your porch for a beer when the the people have alcohol you know pretty heavily impacting their lives uh a drink or a beer is four or five hours worth of drinking do you remember that instance i'm talking about i do how did you feel like was there a moment when you realized uh this is never going to end this Hmm. has gone off the rails um, or did you, or did you think that right from the beginning? Did you have any hope that we would have a beer? Well, I knew a little bit of his history with alcohol, and it was a little like mine, and it was a little like yours. Um, so I knew that it could turn bad, and then when he was like so impressed that you were allowed, I guess, to have a kegerator, like I would have any say in that. Um, he, you know, I was like, oh, shit, this is going to go bad. And, you know, and she had a couple too, but I didn't like the kind of beer that you drank. So right. I didn't really, I don't know if I had, if I had had anything in the house I think at the did. time to drink. I, I mean, a, I think it was early enough I that I... have a vision that you had Sam Adams cherry wheats. Yeah. Which you would buy a six pack and that would last a few weeks or until I just drank them. A few weeks. Impatience. I was going to say like a month. 
Yeah. Because I don't even know if I would have drank two in an evening. And I think the only way that your six-pack of, of cherry wheats would last was when I did have the kegerator, because it was yes. so hard for me to run out of beer. Yeah. If it was a... I mean, when I didn't have the kegerator, I would drink your little six-pack quite often. Yeah. So, I mean, I can imagine that I had one, but I always think, gosh, I wish they made beer bottles smaller, because I only drink about two-thirds of one, and then it gets warm, and who wants that? So it's gross. Um, That's hard for me to understand, <laughs> even in sobriety. But anyway, go on. Um, I, I will say it was nice to have company, and it was nice to have a relief, um, because you guys got along so well. And I thought, wow, if it goes off the rails, like, because it's so long, at least he will have had entertainment, and I won't be bothered. Uh-huh. And she and I can sit and visit, and I felt like I didn't. I felt a sense of relief that somebody else is here to... Because I'm sure it was probably a Friday, Saturday, or Sunday. I'm imagining... It was a Friday or Saturday. It was not... I think it was a Friday. Yeah. And so I was like, oh, gosh, because this could... Because if uh, a Friday night alone, like, if you were bored, like, who knows what you would want to do. Yeah. You know? At least now you have company and entertainment, and it wasn't going to be reliant on me. To provide entertainment or company or someone to listen to you. But you you got a sense early that we were going to overshoot the mark. Oh, yeah. It wasn't just going to be a couple of beers. Oh, yeah. Yeah. In fact, I think for just the three of us that were drinking, I was bringing up pitchers. I wasn't even pouring beers. Yeah. I was bringing up pitchers from the kegerator from the basement for mm-hmm. us to, to share. Now, I will say they weren't like gargantuan pitchers. They were just a... Smaller plastic pitcher, but still. But once, I, I don't know. I don't know what made me. I guess probably the third time I went to fill up the cups, I was like, "I'll just bring up a pitcher," and he yeah. was like, "Great!" And I was like, "Oh, I've found my found my soulmate people. for the evening." You found your people. If he's excited that I'm bringing up a pitcher, but that's what this overshooting the mark, you know, thing really is all about. The the alcohol does bad stuff to us. It makes us unsatisfied. You mix that with the stress, and it's it's really hard to stop. And one of the reasons that you and I have talked a lot lately about how we think it's important that we focus on prevention, not just recovery, but prevention, is because alcohol is so good at its job. It's good at both of the jobs that we've mentioned here. It's good at making us... Uh, it's good at stress relief. It's good at at helping us to relax and helping us unwind and feel like adults. And you know, alcohol is has a role in every event or party, whether it's morning or celebration or something in between. So alcohol is really good until it's not at those roles. But Alcohol is also really good at making us arrogant and rude and unsatisfied and assholes and making us argue with our significant other. So this idea of, you know, recovery, gosh, why would you want to dig this hole for yourself? Or why would you want to try to moderate something that is so powerful? The the best bet, I think, for people, you know, that our hope for the next generation is to respect alcohol the way you respect the tides in the ocean, the fact that it can suck you out and you'll be gone. Uh, and prevention is 
is the way to go. And we don't mean prevention by uh, prohibition. We mean prevention by education, like sharing these stories. That's that's why we do this podcast, so people will understand how how dangerous alcohol can be. Because nobody sets out to become an alcoholic. I don't believe there's much of a genetic component. I know that that's a hotly debated topic, but my God, I... I've just seen too many people, too widespread, too, you know, every single family that I know of has alcoholism in it, one place or the other. So this idea that people are genetically predisposed, I really struggle with that. I think your environment creates alcoholism. I think our culture in general creates alcoholism. I think there's a bunch of people hiding their alcoholism so we don't realize the degree to which it is widespread. But Booze is powerful. It's too good at its job. So just depending on recovery isn't enough. We need more education and we need to look at prevention. We need to look at prevention more. You know, um, the, the this desire to be a high achiever and that at some point that trips from I'm just excited about all the accomplishments into, gosh, there's a lot of stress in my daily life because of what I've accomplished. I've had these kids. I've gotten this promotion. I've got more responsibility at work. The achievement has turned into stress. Um, it's everywhere. Uh, so, you know, alcoholism, addiction in general, it's not going away. It's stress-driven. And uh, as long as the substances, alcohol and other drugs give you these two components where they're really good at making you fight, really good at making you unsatisfied, uh, but they're also the one and only thing that you're, you're using for stress relief. Um, it's going to continue to be everywhere, and that's, that's why I think the prevention component is so important. So uh, the slingshot theory, overshooting the mark. Um, I think that's something that a lot of people will be able to resonate with. Does it make you feel, Sherry, a little bit like, you know, I, maybe this whole 35 minutes that we've been talking is just one big ball of excuses for you to hear come out of my mouth. Does it make you feel like I'm copping out by explaining uh, what we've learned about alcoholism and, and these components? Or does it make sense to you? I don't feel like you're making excuses by any means. I think that it makes sense because I have to be removed from it a little bit to then look back and understand how it makes sense. Maybe at a different point in time, I would say you're making excuses. So if someone's listening and they are still in the middle of it, in the thick yeah. of it, and their drinker's still drinking, it might be harder for that person to hear the this list of reasons why why we overshoot the mark and why alcoholism comes to be it might be harder for them to hear that absolutely because they're just so mad absolutely and you know mad and frustrated and don't know where to turn so i think it takes sobriety and time and and stepping away from the mess of it to then get a better understanding yeah. of the situation so it's hard to I, have empathy for the asshole while they're being an asshole too absolutely yeah well, we have empathy for all the alcoholic assholes out there. 
Mm, I have empathy <laughs> for all this. I'm still, okay. I still am a loved one of an alcoholic, you know, so yeah. I, I still have to. You got uh, that cross to bear? Yeah, the cross to bear. Well, I was going to say, it, it's harder for me to be as empathetic as you are walking in the shoes because, you know, I've learned a lot, yeah. but I still, I have more empathy for someone who has to put up with the, the alcoholic I think what I want to know at this point is, are you as excited about your 50th birthday present as I am? Sure. It'll be great. Episode 100. Yeah. Can you believe we made it? Yeah. And the Echoes crew will be on with us. Yeah. That will be fun. Yeah. Well, thanks for talking to me about this as always. Absolutely. All right. I love you. Love you too. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to SoberEvolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.